0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Extra Sense, where Jeff is going to react live, never hearing, probably never hearing this article that I'm about to read to him. And it is from the Federal Reserve, from the St. Louis Federal Reserve, two researchers that worked over there, or at least they did in April of 2014. Jeff, I have a feeling maybe that a little bit like our reading of Paul Krugman a few weeks ago. There's going to be a reasonable amount of agreement, surprisingly. Let us begin. Quote, from January 2009 to December t- 2013, just jump in whatever you want, Jeff. From January 2009 to December 2013, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet grew by approximately $3.5 trillion due to large scale asset purchase policies implemented to aid the ailing economy after the Great Recession. During normal times, for each 1% increase in the growth of money, inflation increases by 0.54% based on a linear regression of the inflation rate on money growth for the pre-crisis period, and money here is defined as M0, and the pre-crisis period is 1960 to 2007. Money supply, M0, increased by 40.29% between December 2008 and December 2013, or about 8% per year on average. Under this pace of annual money growth, we would have seen inflation of 4.3% per year or a price level increase of at least 40% in 2013 compared with the price level in 2008. But this did not
1: happen. Right, that's the money printing, right? If you go back to 2009, 2010, the early days of quantitative easing, you know, as Eric Townsend had admitted, uh, talking with him on Macro Voices earlier this week, they thought everybody thought this was money printing because it sounds like money printing, and even here, that's the way it's being framed: is that the Fed increasing its balance sheet is contributing to the money, the base money supply, which is you know going back to very to Milton Friedman, very Friedman-esque, you know, high-powered money contributes, or that's where inflation actually comes from by you know, uh, printing quantities of high-powered money or base money, whatever you want to call it. But as we're seeing, and I think where we're going in this particular article is just because we call it high-powered money, just because people think of it as high-powered money or base money, uh, maybe it's not. Maybe there's more to the story than
0: just these these uh, you know ancient statistics. And speaking of statistics and ancient numbers, they just said we should have expected a 4.3% inflation rate. But that was if you looked at M0, and then in a note they said, but if you looked at M0 plus bank reserves or the total monetary base, we would have expected 6.3% per year on average during that period, December 2008, December 2013, 123% increase for that five-year period. So it, it could have been even more. Let me continue Yeah, so I mean, even if it wasn't one to one though right I mean even if the
1: even if the uh the uh, the monetary effect was diminished by like you know people who like the equation of exchange exchange say lower velocity because you know some lingering if whatever, even if the velocity was somewhat lower and it wasn't a, you know the ratios worked out a little differently, we should have we given if we thought if we believed that this was really money printing and money released into the real economy we should have expected maybe not a hundred and some odd percent increase in prices but 50 or 40 or you know something substantial so it wasn't like it was a matter of degree it wasn't like that we missed a little bit and so we're trying to explain the difference between 100 percent and 80 percent. it was we missed everything the entire premise is wrong it wasn't you know we, we expected one thing and it was not like a less of that one thing, it was an entirely different thing. So that's really what, what, what we need to, when we're thinking about QE, money printing, even the monetary system itself, and how it relates to inflation and consumer prices, sustained broad consumer prices. That's what we're really talking about here, is it should have been one thing and it turned out to be a whole different thing. And that should really get your, you know, your skepticism and say, wait a minute what is really going on here because it could not have been what
0: we've told it was been it has been that's right it's not even apples to oranges it's apples to giraffe it's not even on the same radar so continuing maria arias and Yi Wen continue several reasons have been provided for the persistently low inflation for example Fed Chair Janet Yellen said in 2009, when she was still president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, that inflation would not hold, would not take hold during a recession because of little pressure for prices and wages to increase, given that resources through the economy were underused. Others say... That's un- just, uh, that's slack. That's the slack argument. Yep. Others say the unusually low inflation stems from the weakening of the money multiplier, as banks continue to hold excess reserves instead of extending more credit through loans. Still others point to the FOMC's increased communications and forward guidance in anchoring future inflation expectations, as well as to the knowledge that the LSAPs will be eventually reversed.
1: That's the uh, Krugman uh, common, you know, uh, the, uh, the Odyssean versus Delphic accord and guidance debate, all the, uh, the nuances of expectations policy. That it's really, if people expect the Federal Reserve to do one thing, then that's what. It re- but again, if that was the case, then inflation would have been right on exactly the 2% target over the long run instead of persistently underneath it. The
0: uh, central banks are hobbled with the terrible cross they have to bear of being too credible, as Krugman tells us. They're just yeah. too believable. And that's oh, that's a terrible cross to bear. Continuing, there also exists an alternative explanation, Jeff, for the generally unanticipated, unanticipated disinflation or low inflation levels, the liquidity trap. During a Uh-oh. liquidity trap, increases in money supply are fully absorbed by excess demand for money. Investors hoard the increased money instead of spending it because the opportunity cost of holding cash is zero when the nominal interest rate is zero. Even worse, if the increased money, let me see here, even worse, if the increased money supply is through LSAPs on long-term debts, investors are prompt to further shift their portfolio holdings from interest bearing assets to cash. The Fed's policy to pay positive interest rates on reserves can only reinforce the problem by making cash more attractive as a store of value. Yeah, this is an argument we've heard a lot before too, and it goes along with
1: IOER, that essentially the Federal Reserve by paying interest or leaving a little bit of interest on reserves has demobilized those reserves. They've have, they've made banks lazy. And there's a, the other argument is that it hits, but the argument I think they're putting forward here is that the real economy participants have become lazy too because there's no difference between money because money at the zero lower bound is equivalent to short term or short term uh,
0: maturities of debt too so that seemed like that was their the second part of their argument, but the first part was the liquidity trap part, which I thought was interesting here I'm continuing. Low inflation makes cash more attractive to investors as a store of value, everything else equal. This makes the liquidity trap easier to occur and gives the Fed less room to reduce the real interest rate as desired during a recession. Furthermore, quantitative easing through LSAPs can reinforce the liquidity trap by further reducing the long-term interest rate. In other words, more monetary injections during a liquidity trap can only reinforce the liquidity trap by keeping the inflation rate low or the real return to money high. I continue. I can go. You
1: can continue if you want, but I, look, what I would say is that that's not the market view. And the market view is that, look, if you, believe, if you believe the Federal Reserve controls interest rates, then this sounds legitimate. But what they're really saying here, what they're really trying to get at here is, look, We've been told the Fed printed all this money. The banking system created all of these deposits. We've got money, you know, the M's going higher. It didn't lead to inflation. So we need to figure out why that is. And one of the arguments that they're putting forward is that look, the banking system is sort of an impediment because it's treating money and credit as interchangeable. So they're, they're, they're getting closer to the truth, which is maybe this, it isn't that money has behaving differently because it's near the zero lower bound, it's that it isn't money to begin with. They're seeing the symptoms and trying to interpret them in a way that is consistent still with their worldview, which is QE is money printing, but why didn't it lead to inflation? And what they're saying is that money no longer behaves like money when it's simpler to just say it wasn't money to begin with, right? You didn't print money. You mm-hmm. get the same result. There's no reason to come up with a liquidity trap. And the liquidity trap hypothesis does not conform to what we see in markets which is the periodic reflation and then going back into a dollar short you don't get a dollar shortage out of a liquidity trap you don't get a reflation a temporary reflation out of a liquidity trap the only way you can get that is by going back to the source of the problem which is the banking system which actually creates money and then realizing that oh all this bond buying and qe and lsaps that wasn't really doing anything other than creating bank reserves which the banking system treated as useless, which because it is, it is not a form of money. So they're coming at to the same conclusions from a different perspective, trying to reconcile their worldview with reality,
0: which is at least a step in the right direction. Excellent. Excellent. Couple more paragraphs. Therefore, the correct monetary policy during a liquidity trap is not to further increase money supply or reduce the interest rate which is what they've been doing essentially, but to raise inflation expectations by raising the nominal interest rate. If LSAP policies are reversed and the money supply decreases as the Fed sells asset in the marketplace, the nominal interest rate will increase and investors will be more likely to shift their portfolios away from cash toward interest-bearing assets. If demand for money decreases more than proportional to the decrease in money supply due to the upward pressure on the interest rate, inflation will increase. In other words, only when financial assets become more attractive than cash can the aggregate price level increase.
1: Yes, 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 but it's not a matter of policy. That's where they go wrong. What they just described in the paragraph you just read is reflation right? The Fed does more or the Fed does less, and stops buying bonds. The market starts to think, okay, this stuff is starting to work. The economy is recovering. What happens? Interest rates rise. Again, the interest rate fallacy. At least they get that part right. But where they go wrong is they they think that that interest rates rising are a matter of policy, that the bank, the Federal Reserve or the ECB or whoever, they create rising interest rates. And it's just not the case. We've talked about this, I think it was last week. With uh, um, you know talking about Alan Greenspan and the conundrum, the, the bond yields, in particular, further away if you get from the short run, are independent. And so the answer is not to raise interest rates because you can't. And look at what Bernanke did in 2013 when they tapered QE. They expected interest rates to start rising a little bit more because, for one thing, they were buying less bonds, but other other reasons that the whole taper tantrum was about inflationary pressures, positive things happening. And what happened in 2014? Interest rates fell. <laughs> they did the exact opposite because the Federal Reserve doesn't control the interest rate, and that's really the fatal conceit. And a lot of this stuff, as we talk about, there's two problems here. One problem is, you know, Greenspan's idea that interest rates are not independent when they are, and the other problem is that low interest rates are stimulus. So at least this paper gets right that low that we should we we should want rising interest rates, but what they go way wrong is thinking that it's the Fed who controls it or gets it. What the Fed's job is simply where it should be is that, look, we need to take care of the monetary system, not worry about, you know, just bond buying and QE or whatever they want to call it. We need to make sure that the system is 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 stocked with liquidity and dependably and predictably real liquidity, not the stuff that we say, the stuff the banking system tells us it needs, which. I mean, that's just an impossibility, but that's really what their job should be. And that would take care of inflation expectations. That would take care of rising interest rates because the market would then say, yes, we agree that the Federal Reserve has successfully accomplished its narrow task in the monetary system, which is just to make sure it doesn't break down again. And because of that, we've become much more positive. We'll see, we'll we'll raise interest rates for you. We'll raise inflation expectations based upon what we we believe is success. What the market has said ever since 2007 is we don't believe the Fed can do any of the crap it says it can do. And so it looks like to to these people, it looks like a liquidity trap because they're shoving bank reserves into a system that doesn't need bank reserves, doesn't want bank reserves. It's not a liquidity trap at all. It's that the Fed has never fixed the original problem.
0: Excellent, Jeff. I'm glad you pointed all that out because I didn't quite catch that, that fatal conceit, that initial assumption that we're going to be the ones raising rates. Uh, it's, prof- it, it- it's a profound
1: error. And again, you know, when Alan Greenspan testified in front of Congress in 2005 and said, I can't figure this out, light bulbs should have gone off everywhere and said, wait a minute here. This is a fundamental assumption that monetary policy controls not just the short run rate, but all the rest of them fall in line. That the, the yield curve essentially is another tool of the Federal Reserve. When, when he was saying outright at that time is, it's not, it's not, you know, we hope it's temporary, whatever, but that should have been one of those right, right, right before the financial crisis, wait a minute, there's something wrong, deeply, fundamentally flawed in the monetary policy, in the, econo- the way economics views all of these things. And here we are 20 years or, you know, 15 years later, you know, the, this paper was written when you say 2014, 2014, which is kind of partway to where we are today, where more and more scholarship is starting to, to look at, okay, maybe we did get a lot of these basic, basic things wrong. And so you, you can almost see the evolution from Greenspan's conundrum to this liquidity trap paper, to now some of the more recent things where they're talking about QE taking collateral in the system and all the harmful effects of that way. That, that over time, they're being forced to reality, kicking and screaming, dragged the whole way, not voluntarily, but yet they have to reconcile with reality, which is very, very different from the theory. And eventually they're going to get back to, as we talked about in the, the previous podcast episode, they'll, they'll discover Robert Russo in 1984 and Robert Triffin in 1984 saying, Hey, new networks of interbank relations, creating dollars outside of the federal reserve control offshore. Someday they'll get there. And then they'll be able to say, oh, okay, we don't control interest rates. The market does. And the reason the market controls interest rates in the way that it does is because this bank reserve stuff isn't money. This base money we think is base money isn't money. It's all that Euro dollar stuff. And when the Euro dollar stuff is happy and thinks things are going better, rates will rise, like we just said, and that will look at, look, look like higher inflation or higher inflation expectations. And when things are going wrong, rates will fall. And the Federal Reserve only, it doesn't have anything to do with any of that.
0: I was uh, thinking of that that aphorism that uh, generals are always fighting the last war. And I thought of that when I was reading the article you just did for Real Clear Markets here on the 16th of April, uh, and how we were talking about how they were, they figured out what was wrong too late, and then the, the system had evolved. How you often say that it's the scholarship of the, 1950 scholarship of the 1930s, then the euro dollar system came in. They'll, as you said, they'll eventually figure out the euro dollar, euro dollar system, but by then something new right? Will right have then taken it'll be, its It'll place. already be stale and outdated, right? Yeah. <laughs> and in about <laughs> 20 years, somewhat you know yeah, the so process somewhere around
1: 2029 or 2030 they'll say oh that's what happened with lehman brothers <laughs> you know by then
0: said, we, we, we've moved on <laughs> here they conclude inflation is expected to continue being stable and move towards the two percentage target rate out of the fomc as the economy improves this was april 2014 but it will not increase much until the demand for money decreases and the effects of the liquidity trap wane. The that's echoes- wh- that's a, again, they get that
1: right. Right. Cause we talk yeah. about that all the time. The interest rate fallacy, demand for safe liquid instruments, money mm-hmm. equivalents, right? That's exactly what they're saying. And they got that part, right? Except what they got wrong is why? Why are, why is the demand for safe and liquid instruments so high? And they say it's because there's too much money that, you know, there's no, there's no incentive for moving out of safe liquid instruments when in fact, it's the opposite. So that's the part they got to get wrong. And the part that they're, they're not, you know, they have trouble reconciling because their belief is that this is bank reserves are a form of, of useful money. And so it has to be a liquidity trap and that's the only way they can explain the demand for monetary equivalence. When in fact, in, just basic common sense tells you safe liquid instruments are in high demand because liquidity and safety are the paramount concerns of those who are in demand of those things. And that is the opposite of the Fed having created money. It's the the system saying, you haven't done a damn thing for us since 2007, and we know it. We only want to hold safe liquid instruments because we don't believe you people. And therefore in April, 2014, when everything's supposed to be going right, you have interest rates falling around the world all over again suggesting that here we go
0: again another reminder that you people don't know what you're doing april 2014 for those of us in the audience who don't know that was you could say that was the beginning of the third Eurodollar episode that was centered in China and that it would eventually well, yeah. lead to- Well, yeah. I mean, in many ways,
1: it had, already been, it had already been in play. You had currency problems the year before. The Eurodollar futures curve had peaked in September 2013, so there was already Eurodollar futures moving into the wrong way. The Chinese currency was already on the way down. And by April 2014, it had caused an, enough of a stir that it was a mainstream topic in America. So, I mean, there were by April, 2013, there were already, or 2014, there were already a number of warning signs of what was to come and it was not a liquidity trap because there was never an abundance of money.
0: Well, Jeff, I enjoyed it as always, uh, dear audience. If you come across any essays, columns, opinion columns that you think that would be useful to hear uh, Jeff react to live. Send them along to me on Twitter. Uh, Let's see, what is my Twitter? At Emil Kalinowski. You can send them to Jeff, but I don't think he'll read them. So you should still check out his Twitter, though. You'll find him at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP.